Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week, I sit down with 350.org co-founder and communications director, Jamie Henn. During our conversation, Jamie talks about the creation of 350.org, the ramifications for humanity of greenhouse gas emissions continue at their current rate, and how individuals and nations can change their behavior to combat global warming. Welcome to the show. Today we're sitting down with Jamie Henn, the co-founder and communications director of 350.org. And Jamie, first of all, thank you for taking the time to sit down and talk. Um, I would love to start by learning a little bit about your personal background, how you got into this role, and then talk about the history of 350.org, and then just kind of take it from there. Sure. Well, and good to be with you. It's fun to sit down and talk about it. Um, so I helped co-found 350 with a group of college friends and a writer named Bill McKibben about seven years ago now. Um, and we were all up in school at Middlebury College in Vermont. Um, and I'd spent a few years, you know, getting more concerned about climate change just, just through some classes that I'd taken and conversations that I'd been having with friends. Um, and in college, I started doing more and more activism on the issue. And it was just small things at that point, you know, doing bike rides across Vermont uh, to pr- promote renewable energy or getting involved in the local organic garden. Um, but at that time, and again, this was sort of 2005 or so, um, I think students around the country were beginning to get active. It was the first time that there were real established student networks on climate change. And so we got uh, our feet wet kind of doing online activism and some national campaigns over the summer. Um, and so when Bill, as a writer who'd written you know, the first book for a public audience on global warming back in 1989 uh, and been writing about the issue for the years following that, when he really wanted to get more involved in doing activism, he kind of turned to us as the students on campus who knew how to put up websites and write emails and do this whole activism thing. And uh, we got started uh, really in, in 2007 with a national day of action on climate change called Step It Up, um, which just exploded and exceeded all of our expectations. We took about 10 weeks, uh, emailed everybody we could possibly think of, reached out to every environmental group we could uh, track down, called in plenty of favors. Um, and ultimately had 1,400 rallies in all 50 states across the U.S. Um, you know, John Edwards, who was running for president at the time, came out to a rally in New Orleans and said, I'll cut carbon 80% by 2050, which was our demand at the time. And a couple days later, uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton both signed on as well. Um, and so we saw that this model of creative action, you know, offline but brought together on the Internet, could really push forward clear demands around climate change. And, and that was really the genesis for 350. Um, 350 became the global identity of, of that first campaign, and we ended up doing a big global day of action in 2009 uh, and had 5,200 events in 180-plus countries. Uh, CNN called it the most widespread day of political action in the planet's history. Um, and again, we were just uh, blown away by the level of engagement and excitement and commitment that people brought from all around the world. Um, so since then... 350s continued to try and run campaigns that are both creative, that have a real sense of narrative, um, that tap into people's desire to take action on climate change, and continue to see what we can do to really tilt the needle 
um, on this issue and create the type of political movement that we see necessary for real change. And, and the name 350, and I know that has some, a scientific connotation. What What is 350 and what is the goal that's linked to the name of the organization? Sure. So we're named after the goal of reducing the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to 350 parts per million. Uh, right now, we're at about 400 parts per million. I just saw a graph go across Twitter today that showed the levels of CO2 in the atmosphere have been above 400 for a few months now globally. Um, the reason why we picked 350 is because we were searching for a number of things. Uh, one, a unifying target that applied globally no matter where we were at. Um, you know, 350 really is the kind of line after which climate change becomes really dangerous. And of course, we're past that and we're beginning to see the impacts of what that does the further we get away from 350, the worse the impacts are. Um, and if we're serious about solutions, they should really be pointing us back in that direction. The second thing we were looking for uh, was something that would actually translate around the world. Um, it became very difficult to come up with names that uh, you could do in all these different languages without offending somebody or saying the wrong thing. Um, so 350 was kind of a, a numerical target that anybody anywhere could recognize. Um, and finally, you know, it, it had sort of a uh, different digital feel to it that I think we found appealing and that, you know, we like to think that we set a bit of a trend with numbers, you know, we see the 99% and everything after that. Um, so, you know, it's unique. I think it both um, conveys that we're about climate change, you know, we're one of maybe the only global organization that's solely dedicated to climate. There's lots of environmental groups, but they do a lot of different work. Um, it, it talks about the science and, and holds that kind of scientific integrity that we try and live up to. Um, but it also has a little bit of a unique flair that I think we've tried to keep in our campaigning. And talk about the science a little bit. I mean, the 350 mark as a benchmark for what, from the organization's perspective, that's that's the bench line. That's the highest we should go. That's the range at which we could comfortably exist on the planet. Talk about the difference between what the world would look like in a 350 parts per million world versus a 400 parts per million or 450 parts per million. What, what's, what would a, an average human being on the planet or people in specific regions of the world notice our differences between the two? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, we've, we've begun to see over the last two years and, and before the impacts of what it's like to live at 400 ppm. Um, you know, you look at the devastation that's happening around the world right now from extreme weather events, be it Typhoon Haiyan that hit the Philippines um, last year or Hurricane Sandy, which hit New York where we're sitting now. Um, you know, even this summer, uh, the drought in California, the impact that that's having both on the agricultural economy in the state as well as all the communities that depend on that, I think are reminders of um, the serious implications and really civiz civilizational threatening implications that climate change really has. Um, this is something that we really can adapt to, um, you know, and, and especially in countries and in places which are more vulnerable to the impacts. Um, so that's 400. Uh, you know, when you look at the scenarios that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or the International Energy Agency are putting forward that say we could go up to 700, 800, 1,000 ppm, um, it's almost unimaginable what that would look like on the planet. But no matter what, it spells catastrophe in a number of different ways. Um, Getting back to 350 is extremely difficult. Um, it's an aspirational target far beyond putting a man on the moon. Um, but it's what science says is necessary. Um, and if we begin to head in that direction, uh, it provides the space for the planet to begin to recover. Um, it allows those ecological systems to begin to move back into balance. Um, and, and if anything, allows us to begin to chart a course for humanity uh, in the 21st century. I think that you know we have big choices to make about how we want to live on this planet and whether or not we can provide um, for the people 
that are coming in the next generations. I think 350 provides that kind of clear direction of where we need to be headed. And it's not that at 350, one would notice a world free from tornadoes and hurricanes and extreme weather. It's just right. the magnitude, the, the size, the scale of those would be much more manageable than it would be if in, in greater numbers. Of yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it, you know, we have big problems that we need to face as a society, whether it's poverty or economic injustice and social injustice. Um, but those problems are things that we can actually tackle on, on a planet where we have a functional civilization. Um, if we let climate change go unchecked, there's no way that we're going to get after those other big issues. Um, you know, many development experts have, have put it really succinctly that climate change undoes all of the progress that we, the limited progress that we've made over the past few decades. Um, you know, th this really is, in a way, the, the mother of all issues um, and, and is completely interconnected with all the effort, efforts that we have to really get after um, as we as we move forward. And so I think that that's why, in a way, you know, we've been trying as a movement to really connect those different pieces in, into more of a, a cohesive puzzle and, and try and find the solutions that not only address climate change, but also can move us forward on a number of different fronts. I, it, it seems like given the time frame in history, I mean, this is a global issue, and it's a global issue at a time where the internet does exist. I would imagine that must make a potential movement like this far more possible than one may have been possible 50 years ago. But talk about also the the advantages of technology and also some of the thing, some of the pushback, some of the challenges that you see every day. I mean, this is something as you mentioned that the vast majority of scientists, if not all scientists in the world, agree on. But it doesn't seem like nations are mobilizing quite as quickly as I'm sure you would like. Yeah. Well, I think technology and the internet is one of our greatest tools that we have to begin to go after this crisis. Um, you know, as carbon dioxide gets pumped into the atmosphere, the, the saving grace is that, you know, internet spreads around the world as well and that more people are getting online with cell phones and everything else. Um, you know, that's allowed us to organize in completely different ways. Um, the type of work that 350 does in terms of coordinating these massive global days of action, of, of leveraging online action to actually create a political impact, none of that would have been possible a decade ago. And I think we're still figuring out the best ways to combine offline mobilization and online action in ways that can really shake up the political system and provide change. It's not always the most obvious. I think that we've seen maybe the uh, limits of purely online action and petition after petition after petition asking President Obama to do something. Um, you know, at 350, we've experimented a lot with really old school ways of organizing from civil disobedience to this mass uh, People's Climate March that we're planning in New York this September, where we're hoping to have hundreds of thousands of people in the streets. We'll also be live streaming it. We're also hoping to get the screens in Times Square to show images of people taking action around the world. And I think that ultimately that combination is really important. You know, in terms of combating the denial out there and the sort of dark side of the internet, which is so adept at spreading misinformation and letting kind of the vile rhetoric of uh, impassioned minorities really uh, push against maybe the established wisdom and, and, and the scientific consensus, um, it's a challenge. You know, my sense is that in a way that isn't the biggest threat that we face. Um, you know, internet trolls and all of that are important and we should be doing our best to push back on that misinformation. Um, but when you look at the polling out there, you know, it's clear that the vast majority of Americans want to see action on climate change. They would even accept higher energy prices if that was necessary. They want a price on carbon. Um, but we haven't been able to stand up to the power of the fossil fuel industry that's standing in the way. Um, so at 350, to be honest, we're you know focused a little less on 
convincing deniers that they should care about climate change and more about figuring out how we can mobilize people that already care or kind of care to get people to take action and to figure out ways that really we can really apply ourselves to challenge the fossil fuel industry and begin to push our politicians to actually respond. Where does that power come from that they have within the government? I mean, is it surely that it's primarily Americans depend on gasoline to do almost everything in their life? Is it that they're donors to camp to politicians who have influence in Washington? Yeah, where, it's, it's, where, where, it, what's the root? There? I mean, it's it's money, money, money. Uh, you know, money talks in Washington. It talks loudly. Uh, the fossil fuel industry has donated more money uh, to the political process and, and various campaigns than any other industry on the planet. Um, you know, we sometimes forget the Koch brothers. They're they're a fossil fuel interest. I mean, that's where their wealth comes from, and that's why they played such a huge role in our political system. Um, you know, in, in the post Citizens United era, Chevron was the corporation that they gave the largest single political contribution of any other industry. Um, you know, this is the 1% of the 1%. Um, and they're fighting to protect their interests in part because the type of transition that we need to see to address climate change completely undermines the structure of those industries. Uh, it decentralizes power instead of centralizes it. It frees people from needing to go to the pump and keep handing over their paycheck to these companies. And it begins to give people the type of distributed decision-making system and energy system that allows them to be more engaged in their political process and see change in a lot of different venues. Um, so there's no wonder that they're fighting like hell to stop it. There's a lot of money at stake. Um, but you know, until we can really pinpoint that, until we can really recognize that that's the obstacle and, and rally folks around that, I think we're going to have a lot of trouble pushing forward the type of solutions that we need to see. And is it really gasoline primarily that is driving the, the rise in parts per million? It's a, it seems like it's a combination of a variety of different factors that's contributing to the rise in carbon. But it, would you identify that as the primary uh, the, the primary adversary to decreasing the parts of the carbon in, in the atmosphere? Well, I think that, I mean, obviously oil consumption is a big part of it. And, and the oil majors, the major oil companies like Exxon and Chevron are particularly um, engaged in the political obfuscation and lobbying that's blocking progress. But actually, you know, the place where we see the majority of emissions from is from coal mm -hmm. and even dirtier forms of energy. I think the fight right now in many ways is to make sure that one, we're shutting down coal plants and really taking coal offline. If we can't get after coal, we're going to have a real problem beginning to uh, address the crisis. Second is really making sure that even dirtier and new extreme forms of energy don't come online. Um, that's why we're engaged in such, such fights around things like tar sands um, and increasingly uh, things like fracking, where natural gas originally looked like maybe it would be a cleaner source of energy. Um, but now that we know more about the methane leaks and other problems associated with, with it, it uh, becomes a real place where we need to put up a stand. Um, and third is then beginning to chip away at things like oil consumption that are really embedded uh, in the economy. The good news is, is that there's a lot of incredible solutions and technology out there. I mean, oil consumption in the U.S. is going down, not up. Uh, the price of solar has plummeted at the rate that we saw among cell phones and other technology that's just become ubiquitous over the last number of years. Um, so again, you know, the, the technological challenge of what we're up against is immense, but it's completely doable. And actually, the process uh, would be fantastic uh, for the economy and for uh, all these companies that are dedicated to innovation, all the people that are looking for jobs to be retrofitting buildings or whatever it may be. The problem is, is that our government has tilted 
the subsidies and incentives so much in the opposite direction towards the fossil fuel industry and hasn't passed the type of reforms or legislation we need to spark a clean energy economy, that that's where the real kind of fight lies. If we could get the type of appropriate price on carbon that priced in all the damage that these fossil fuels are causing, uh, I think the economy would flip really quickly and would do a lot of benefit in a number of different areas. Until we can see that sort of political adjustment, it's going to be really difficult to move at the pace in which we need to towards these solutions. It certainly seems that part of the solution must be policy-based. And are there specific policies that have been definite victories for the organization 350.org and definite defeats for the for the organ for the organization and are there any that are coming up that are going to be major and really play an important role particularly in the Obama administration I mean, a lot of people who got behind the administration initially that was one of the driving reasons why they were interested in him as a candidate um, how do you grade the administration right now and what can they do in the remaining few years to to do something yeah that's a good question I mean I think that it depends on your on what you're grading on or your scale. Um, rated in uh, dealing with the climate crisis and, and doing what science actually demands that we need to be done, um, you know, a, a D minus, if not an F. Um, grading in terms of the political landscape in which the president has found himself and the um, you know the complete lack of a Congress that's willing to do anything, maybe you move up to kind of a D plus C minus. I think. Um, look, this is an administration that came into office saying that they would end the tyranny of oil, that they uh, would, you know, this is the time when we'd see the seas begin to fall. Um, and we, we haven't seen that type of commitment. The problem has been is that the administration wants to have their cake and eat it, eat it too. They'll promote solar panels, they'll put some money into clean energy, but then they'll go ahead and open up the Powder River Basin in Montana for coal mining. And there's enough carbon locked in there to completely wipe out the other work that they've done. Um, you know, they celebrate building wind turbines, but then they also say that they've opened up more oil and gas drilling than any previous administration. Um, that might work in politics where you want to have a little bit for everybody, but when it comes to the science of climate change, physics and chemistry aren't negotiating. Um, it, it does come down to how much carbon you're pumping into the atmosphere, and if this administration has continued to move us forward on the fossil fuel path in ways that are just unsustainable. Um, in terms of the policy piece and, and what we've been doing, you know, in a way, the, the greatest failure is that we haven't been able to really implement larger system-wide climate policies that can have a, a real impact. Um, it's a tough road to hoe. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of work to be done, but I think that we're continuing to figure out how we can assemble the type of broad, diverse, powerful movement that can drive those pieces forward. Um, these changes don't come quickly. You know, it took decades. Uh, for many of our major civil rights legislation or other pieces to get into effect. Um, sadly, we don't kind of have that time frame when it comes to climate change. We need to act sooner. Um, but we're beginning to see the ways that we can make an impact and the ways that we can have wins. The most kind of prominent example that we've been involved in has been this fight against the Keystone XL pipeline, which three or now almost four years ago, um, you know, everybody thought would be built. They did a poll National Journal commissioned a poll of uh, so-called energy insiders, uh, all the people in Washington that tell you, you know, what's going to happen and what isn't. And 97% and of them said the Keystone XL pipeline will be built by the end of the year. There's no way it's going to be blocked. Um, that was three years ago, you know, and that pipeline's still rusting in a field somewhere in, in, uh, in Nebraska. Um, and so I think that the combination of uh, that that br that that fight brought of people on the ground who are really committed to protecting their homes, 
of national organizations that are really willing to throw their weight behind a fight and of hundreds of thousands of everyday people that were willing to demonstrate in D.C., uh, commit civil disobedience when necessary and mobilize online to stop this project, we've begun, been able to really hold it back. Um, you know, that, that's a big win in some ways. Is it enough to address climate change? Not at all. But it does provide us a template and the type of momentum that we need to be really going after these larger challenges. And the pipeline has gotten a lot of media attention. And I mean, the, the basic idea behind the pipeline is what? I'd love to have you just describe what the yeah, project sure. was and, and what, what happened to it. Yeah, so it's the, it's the pipeline that never dies, but that we've been able to keep from uh, completely coming alive. It's the zombie we keep fighting. Um, so Keystone XL would be a 1,700-mile pipeline that would flow from the tar sands, which are a really dirty, muddy, uh, you know, just terribly thick and nasty form of energy up in Alberta, Canada. Um, and it would take that and flow all the way down across the United States to refineries at the Gulf Coast of Mexico, where, according to all of the industry's own paperwork, it would be uh, refined and then sold for export. So this is not a pipeline to America, it's a pipeline through America to try and get this oil overseas. Uh, the big problem from a climate perspective is the fact that tar sands are so dirty. Um, our leading climate scientist in this country, um, NASA's Dr. James Hansen, said that you know Keystone XL was a fuse to the largest carbon bomb on the planet and that if the Canadian tar sands were fully developed, it basically meant game over for the climate. Um, so this is one of those unconventional fuels that you really do need to leave in the ground if you're serious about addressing climate change. Um, Keystone has all sorts of other problems as well, from the refinery communities where children are getting asthma and other health effects to the risk of a spill all on the pipeline route to the devastation that the tar sands mining is causing up there in Canada. So it's no surprise uh, that people up and down the pipeline route and across the country really mobilized around it. Um, the reason why we've been able to hold it back is because in order for Keystone to cross our international border with Canada, they need what's called a presidential permit. Um, and so we've really taken advantage of that and, and pushed back on the president and said, listen, this is a real test of your commitment on climate change. Uh, either you're approving this terrible project um, or you can really use this as an opportunity to take a stand against the fossil fuel industry and, and point towards a clean energy future. Um, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic, actually. I think that the president has waited this long. Um, he's seen the evidence. He's a smart guy that if we can continue to keep up the pressure uh, on them to do the right thing and keep holding back the fossil fuel industry, which is spending everything it can uh, to try and get this thing approved, uh, we have a real chance of eking out a win, uh, which would be a major victory uh, for everybody along the route and, and for everybody that cares about climate in this country. You mentioned some of the opposition to what you guys are doing. You know, the, the Koch brothers are, are sort of the poster children of the anti-climate change movement that's trying to begin in this country and, and also leadership in Exxon and Chevron and other oil companies. Do you view their lack of incentive to do something significant, to take a leadership role in doing something as sheer greed or just they haven't been given the proper incentives, they're not well-educated enough? How do you see the resistance? I mean, if you're a an executive in one of these companies and you have a nice life and you're sending your kids to college and you have a paycheck that pays for everything and then some, you know, do you expect that there's just inevitably going to be a fight or is there an argument or new economic incentives that can be given to them or shown to them that can show how they might be able to pivot away from what they're doing to a new, a new economy or a new form of a business for their, for their companies? I mean, I think it depends on the company. Um, you know, if you look at industries that are outside of fossil fuels, um, 
companies that still maybe use a lot of energy. Uh, take uh, Apple Computers, which has huge server farms and massive supply chains. Um, you know, they've really begun with the right incentives and right technology and right leadership to move in a different direction. Are they perfect? Not at all. I mean, they still have issues to face, but uh, they've made some really bold steps in terms of reducing their energy use. So there's an example of how incentives can provide enormous corporations uh, ways to really move in the right direction. Um, when it comes to the fossil fuel industry, uh, no. I mean, they're, look, they're, they're greedy. Uh, they want to make as much money as possible. They've made that c completely clear. Um, if Exxon and uh, the Koch brothers and people really put their minds to it and said, we want to move towards a clean energy future, they have enough money stockpiled that they could be doing all the research they need and pumping it into clean energy and figuring out how to move in that direction. Instead, they've done the exact opposite. Almost every fossil fuel company from Exxon to BP, which even sh changed our logo and said they were beyond petroleum, has absolutely slashed their renewable energy uh, research and development programs. Instead, they're doubling down, spending hundreds of millions of dollars a day as an industry exploring for new hydrocarbons. Um, you know, Exxon came out with a report this fall saying that uh, they had no intention of moving away from their core business model of of fossil fuels and that they didn't believe that governments were ever going to be serious about addressing climate change. Um, so I don't think it really is a matter of incentives. I think it really is a matter of, you know, pushing these companies to be forced to change or to go out of business. Um, again, you know, the type of economic transition we want to see is one where we change the energy system, but that we also try and make this transition in a way that really helps communities and helps distribute resources uh, more broadly. You know, there, there's no coincidence that the fossil fuel age, uh, especially the way we've been pursuing it over the last couple of decades, um, has led to such massive social inequality. Um, we're literally concentrating power in the hands of the few. Um, and so we have a huge opportunity this time around to make this transition in a different sort of way and move in a different direction. So, you know, as much as I, uh, I guess, would uh, be fine with, you know, Exxon putting up some solar panels and things, I'd much prefer to see new companies be popping up and, and communities and people really take ownership over it themselves. I think that that not only holds the greatest promise of addressing climate change, but also has a lot of co-benefits that come along with it. If you were to look outside of the United States and look at other nations and how other countries have responded to this issue, are there some that you look to as models that we can learn from and, and adapt some of, adopt some of the things that they've done, both keeping their economy alive and, and thriving and prospering and doing just, so, just fine, but also taking these changes that we've learned we, we need to make over the last 20 or 30 years, taking them seriously and actually implementing them? And, and if so, what have they done and what, what countries are they? Yeah, well, I think there's a number of places to look. Um, you know, one is just at, at countries who are on the front lines of climate change, who have pr provided a real level of moral and political leadership on these issues. Um, some of the strongest statements that we've seen have come from countries like Bangladesh or Pacific Islands or countries in Africa that are really seeing the impact. So when it comes to a way of talking about climate change in the context of the economy and development and showing political leadership, those are good places to go. Uh, when it comes to the technology and really implementing solutions, um, you know, Germany is probably the country that's really done the most. Um, there were days this summer when Germany was generating far more than 50% of, of its electricity from solar. Um, and it, you know, it's impressive. This is not uh, California or Arizona. This is, you know, cloudy Germany. Um, if they're able to do it, then we certainly should be able to 
one of the reasons why is that they passed really smart policies that were incentives for local communities to be able to sell electricity back to the grid and so that they could put up solar panels and actually be making a profit by that energy system. That involved really changing the traditional utility structure that we have in this country and making it much more accessible um, so that people could be adjusting those rates and the energy could flow much more um, quickly and in much more distributed ways. Uh, we could be doing the same thing here in this country, though, and that would be a good place to go. And, you know, Germany is still coming along just fine, running on renewable energy and winning the World Cup at that. Uh, so I think that they'd be a good example to be following uh, in this regard. Um, you know, thankfully, that type of change is beginning to happen, I think, at the local level in some cities and states here in the U.S., uh, but it would be really great to see that begin to move much more quickly at the national level as well. From an individual perspective, an individual citizen in the United States, if, if, if you could ask them to do one thing or a couple of things in their life to devote some time or energy to this issue, would it be activism politically? Would it be changing their behavior in some ways by carpooling more often? What is it an all of the above scenario? What, what would be a couple of things that you would recommend that people do to try to begin to take this seriously? Yeah, well, I think there's a number of things. Um, you know, one would be would be getting involved politically and and the activism piece of it. I think that this is one of those problems where there's no way for us to make the transition fast enough if we don't really make the political system work for us. Um, so whether it's you know coming to New York for this big climate march in September, uh, there's info at peoplesclimatemarch.org, um, or getting involved in different campaigns, like we're running a big fossil fuel divestment effort, which is modeled on the anti-apartheid movement, um, and really convincing institutions like your alma mater or church or city or state to move their money from the fossil fuel industry into solutions. Um, those are great ways to get involved. You know, I think that actually for, for those policy geeks or people that really want to see things happening at the local level, you know, local government is a place where people really can push forward some interesting initiatives. And it's a fascinating way just to get involved in the civic life of your community. Um, so, you know, I've always encouraged people, rather than just figure out a way that you can put a solar panel up on your roof, you know, try and get together with your neighbors and talk about what sort of local policies or incentives or just kind of collect collecting that... Uh, that demand um, could really achieve and move things forward faster. Uh, so again, anything that gets people involved in their community, gets people working with others on solutions, I think is probably the way to go. There's all the things that we can do, and we should certainly be riding our bikes and eating local and doing all of that. Um, but it's just not going to add up unless we can begin to really figure out how to multiply all of those actions together and make even more of a political impact. Last question I want to ask you is about politics and politics in the future. Um, it seems crazy that we're almost to the point where people are going to begin running for president again, but that's that's coming up. Are there are there candidates that you know are at least interested in running for president that this organization would be very much behind or at least support the ideas of what they're doing? And and if so, what what can people do to to help them? Will you have a list online of people who are running for president or other positions that they can learn what their positions are on climate change? Yeah. So you know, three fifty dot org itself is a 501c3, so we don't endorse candidates or give those recommendations. We do have like a C4 affiliate 350 action, which is quite small. I mean, we're much more of like a movement organization and less of, uh, you know, electoral politics machine in any way. Um, but we will be trying to do what we can to really get the information out there and push forward candidates uh, who are doing the right thing. Um, you know, it's probably too early to look ahead at the presidential election, um, but of course, you know, there's a lot of elections coming up this, uh, this fall in the midterms. Um, you know, I think that this is probably the last 
election in this country, these midterms, where you're going to have any climate deniers who can really legitimately run for public office. I think it's becoming just, you know, such kind of common wisdom um, that even those deniers in the Republican Party who have been the most vehement voices against the idea of climate change are having to change their tune. Um, you know, we saw Marco Rubio have to sort of eat his words a little while ago and get completely lost in his own circuitous explanations of why climate change wasn't a problem. Um, I think the politics have really shifted in this country uh, because of the extreme weather events people are seeing, um, because of the economic crisis and people really looking for the kind of next big way that we can drag this country back out of that. Um, I think that there's some surprising momentum out there. You know, climate change in the end is a, is a strange, difficult issue to work on. It's this big civilizational challenge, which is kind of all around us, but also nowhere. Um, and what we've tried to do at 350 with all the people around the country and around the world we work on is, is to make that feel real, whether it's showing people the impacts it has in their lives, showing people the opportunities that are there if we begin to address the crisis, and finally showing people that there's a movement, that people really care. Um, you know, if you go to 350 website, it's full of images and stories of people around the world taking action. That's the type of thing that we really want to share um, and inspire people with. And again, I think that the next year or so is, is really critical. I mean, we are sort of running out of time on, on these issues, um, but we're finally beginning to see the type of activism and movement that could really make a difference. So it's, uh, in the end, it's, it's intimidating to think about global warming a lot, but, it, but it's really exciting to be a part of the movement that's trying to tackle it. And, and one quick follow-up on that. I, I, know, I know that these are issues that when global leaders get together and meet, this is a subject that it comes up in conversation. But as you mentioned, it's a civilizational discussion. It's a, it, it affects every country in the world. Are there beginning to be subsections of the UN that are dedicated primarily and solely to climate change where presidents and prime ministers of countries all over the world can get together and demand that all countries who sign on to certain pacts have to follow certain certain laws or rules or how how will what is a path by which the entire world or a lot of countries in the world could begin to get on board with some serious changes yeah so there there is the infrastructure is there um you know if we have the political will to really address this crisis i think the pieces of the international frameworks and treaties and everything will fall into place um there's a process called the united nations framework convention on climate change which has been negotiating for the last couple of decades actually mm -hmm. the type of treaties and programs and international mechanisms that could help address the crisis um we're reaching another critical point of that. Uh, this September, uh, here in New York at the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, the Secretary General, is hosting a climate leaders summit when presidents and prime ministers from around the world will come to New York for a day and really try and elevate climate change as a key issue and provide some momentum going forward. Um, that's why the weekend before, September 21st, we're really trying to do this huge march through New York. Um, you know, this is the last best chance that world leaders will have to get together and really set an agenda. Um, next year in 2015, there's going to be a big kind of full United Nations meeting in Paris to really try and deliver this climate treaty. But if we don't see momentum in New York this year, there's no chance that that treaty is going to be a success. Um, so the international process is there. Uh, the, the tools are there. The technology is there. I think it does come down to that political will. 
um, and you know our ability to find creative ways to spark it. Um, I would say you know all hope is by no means lost. Uh, there are good good news uh, that again the techno- technology and the excitement in the solar sector I think are really promising. Um, what we need to do is figure out how to create some real momentum and, and begin to push these politicians to have the backing that they need to stand up to the Exxons and Koch brothers of the world and really deliver for the people who are being impacted by this crisis. Jamie, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about The Exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com. 